Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Revolutionary Evolutionary Finance, a show that takes us listeners on an awe-inspiring, mentally stimulating journey through the dense jungle of all that is capital. The objective of each episode is to create a philosophy of functional finance that would complement listeners' common cognizance. The primary purpose of this production in its full package is the promotion and practical exhibition of evolution at the speed of thought. The ideas that grow are the ones that encounter new mental environments. Our intention is to both evidence and expedite this outlook. I'm your host, Marwan Hajar, at your service in answering any of your questions regarding the show. Thanks for tuning in. Title, Dynamic Indices, A Shift in the Prevailing Investment Paradigm. Acknowledgements. Father, I must admit that as I am writing this, I'm finding it rather difficult to keep my eyes dry. Thank you for your undiminished support throughout my years of both development and maturation. Live long, good sir. Abstract. The adaptive markets hypothesis assumptions allow both the principles of the efficient markets hypothesis and its behavioral critiques to exist under the same theoretical landscape. According to adaptive markets hypothesis, evolutionary forces competition, innovation, reproduction and adaptation play a major role in shaping the form and function of not only behavior and anatomy, but also narratives and ideas. Under the adaptive markets hypothesis, market efficiency isn't a permanent condition that stands solely on the force of economic self-interest. Market efficiency is the byproduct of very human elements interplaying harmoniously. Therefore, it can wax and wane. Market participants' optimal behavior is the result of their individual heuristics and biases. Heuristics and biases are molded by a neurological reward-punishment system in the brain. This system produces emotions. Market participants' suboptimal behavior occurs when the interplay between heuristics and emotions manifests itself unharmoniously in the market. Naturally, extreme emotional reactions such as fear, and greed are what can trigger distortions in the principles of market efficiency. This paper particularly focuses on distortion and the risk-reward trade-off principle. The paper suggests metrics to detect or predict market distortion, metrics that could, in effect, act as proxies for market efficiency levels. This research assumes that the VIX index daily opening rate contains information that would make it a reliable indicator of market distortion. Passive risk management strategies were tailored around this metric to create dynamic indices. Dynamic indices' overarching principle is simple. Investing solely and completely in the market is optimal, so long as the market's efficiency is not distorted. 18 dynamic indices were constructed. Each index was set to cash in and out of the market systematically. This action of cashing in and out of the market was triggered whenever the VIX index opened at a level exceeding a pre-specified threshold. These pre-specified thresholds were linked to VIX rolling day averages. Essentially, these indices acted individually as standardized trading strategies. Over the sample period, all but three were less risky than the market, and all but two underperformed the market in terms of total return. However, 8 of the indices generated alpha, but most interestingly, 5 of them outperformed the market in terms of return per unit of risk, aka Sharpe ratio. 
Based on the findings, dynamic indices are investment vehicles better suited for leveraging since they offer capital allocation lines that are superior to the static market index portfolio. Chapter 1. Introduction For the discipline of physics, nature's laws are fixed parameters utilized to create compact mathematical equations that help explain the universe. Sir Isaac Newton's three laws of motion can no doubt, with superlative accuracy, explain 99% of the phenomenon relative to their scope. In contrast, economic theories and models tower physics in quantity, but unfortunately do not compare with regards to robustness. Economics' central flaw lies in methodical individualism, the belief that explanations of social phenomena should be built from the study of individual behavior. This principle led to a number of assumptions to take form, most notably, the one stating that individuals are utility maximizers with consistent tastes and stable preferences. These assumptions created fixed parameters in areas where they did not exist. This enabled financiers and economists to treat elements of the market, such as correlations for example, as physical quantities. Enter quantitative financial innovation and engineering. Events like the subprime mortgage crisis, when all individual behavior became correlated, is testament to the discrepancy between physics and biology. The most recent economic crisis, 08, is an appropriate example of how rigid financial models can pose great risk. Approximately 10,000 Americans retire daily, and chances are their 401k plans are in some way, shape, or form invested passively in the market. Passive index investing is endorsed by both academics and practitioners. Arguments in favor of passive index investing are compelling. However, they may not resonate with waves of retirees under the shadow of a financial crisis. Retirees that may be looking at retirement accounts that are worth significantly less than what they would have been had they somehow liquidated their investments months or even weeks earlier. This research paper intends to test the applicability of a market index investment conjoined with an automated risk management strategy that is based on clear and concise investment principles which can be expressed through Boolean operators. The following section will iterate a brief history of the evolution of the market portfolio weighted by market capitalization. This narrative is the premise of this paper. It is its essence. Overview and Rationale Prior to 1952, the terms yield, risk, and diversification were still, as they are now, relatively prevalent. However, light had not been shed on their abstractness. The average investor at the time would have been able to acknowledge the benefits of diversification, but nevertheless, only intuitively. Harry Markowitz's paper on portfolio selection suggested that expected return came with an allowance for risk. Building on that point, it was implied that as an investor diversifies amongst investments with the same anticipated return, the law of large numbers would eventually ensure that the expected return matches with the actual return. Moving forward, the paper explains the aforementioned logic behind diversification using the expected returns variance of returns rule. In order to provide an elegant Formula for optimum portfolio selection, Markowitz's paper sets theoretical boundaries of reasoning for the investor. In other words, assumptions on how investors make their decisions. His theory suggested that investors' decisions are solely based on risk and return, 
and that those two elements are only measured through variances and probability distributions, respectively. The end result was an elegantly succinct mathematical formula that encapsulates all the elements that theoretically impact a portfolio's risk. Building upon Professor Markovitz's efficient portfolio theory and the assumptions that it is based on, market equilibrium under conditions of risk combines distinct academic thought with shrewd practical know-how to take the theory a step further. The paper suggested that Given a basket of investment opportunities with risks and expected returns, an investment opportunity curve can be plotted. On the opportunity curve, each portfolio would represent the highest possible return for any given level of risk, in effect, creating an efficient frontier. Given an efficient frontier, the most dominant of the dominant portfolios can be identified. It is referred to as either the envelope portfolio or the market portfolio. It is then shown that combining a risk-free asset with the envelope portfolio creates a capital allocation line, a line tangent to the efficient frontier. Now, under the assumption of a common pure interest rate, something fascinating happens. The relationship between risk and return becomes linear, and investors' ability to lend or borrow at a pure risk-free rate would in theory, allow him or her to increase or decrease return in direct proportion to risk. Finally, the capital asset pricing theory defines the two subcategories of risk, systematic and idiosyncratic, where idiosyncratic risk is the component that is uncorrelated with return. An inefficiently diversified portfolio's investments are weighted in a disproportionate manner, one that leaves its investors exposed to idiosyncratic risk. This type of portfolio's capital allocation line does not run tangent in relation to the efficient frontier. It fails to optimally exploit the capital allocation line. In Columnation, the work of Harry Markowitz and William Sharp led to the academic consensus that a low-cost passive investment in an efficiently diversified portfolio, in other words, one that is weighted by market capitalization, along the capital allocation line is both practically applicable and academically endorsed. However, it is important to note that the efficiency of a market capitalization weighted portfolio, such as the S&P 500 or FTSE 100, for example, is somewhat controversial, since in theory, the market portfolio is defined as a bundle of investments that contains every single type of financial asset av available in the financial markets investing universe. A UCLA professor, Richard Roll, wrote about the market portfolio identification problem and the capital asset pricing model's severe testability limitation. Now, besides some of the disputations relating to the capital asset pricing model, the consensus is largely that market capitalization-weighted indices are actually market portfolios. For example, even the widely used Black-Litterman capital allocation model must take the market capitalization-weighted index as a substructure for efficient portfolio allocation in order to complete its process of reverse optimization. John C. Bogle, Founder of the Vanguard Investment Group formed the first passive investment fund on the grounds of outstanding logic, logic which he shares in many of his books and articles. Bogle used what he coined the humble rules of arithmetic to derive overwhelming evidence in support of low-cost index investing by market capitalization. To encapsulate the negative value creation of investment managers, Bogle notes that the returns earned by all investors must fall short of market returns 
by precisely the amount of aggregate costs incurred. With a simple backtest, Bogle illustrates the devastating impact that compounded management fees have on overall investment performance. He shows how an investment in an average equity fund from the period 1983 to 2003 would have only provided 57% of the cumulative return a low-cost index fund would have been capable of offering. Principally, Bogle's ideas are a practical take on the efficient markets hypothesis. Bogle states, if market prices reflect past, present, and discounted future events, then the mathematical expectation of the speculator is not only zero, it is zero minus the cost of playing the game. So statistically, if investment managers' performance follows a bell curve, their fees and costs would shift the curve to the left, creating a gap between gross and net performance. The process of indexation mentioned above, without a doubt, led to the democratization of investing. The adaptive markets hypothesis suggests that the multi-trillion dollar index fund industry took its financial form as a result of its financial function being, evo being evolutionary advantageous relative to the market's ecology. Market ecology is characterized by the number of competitors in the market, the adaptability of market participants, and the magnitude of profit opportunities available. The environment allowed the idea of a transparent, investable, and rules-based investment vehicle to survive and thrive. The technology available coupled with competition, led to the commoditization of the investment vehicle so much that the returns are now just enough to compensate investors for the risk associated with the activity. Context of the research. Evolution at the speed of thought shaped the status quo. The transfer of ideas and narratives that are relevant to this topic from and to new mental environments produced the form and function of static indices. A static index is an investment vehicle that passively invests in an index without any risk management. The adaptive markets hypothesis provides a reconciliation between efficient markets and behavioral finance. It casts an alternative narrative. With the adaptive markets hypothesis comes dynamic indices. Fundamentally, a dynamic index is meant to systematically exploit market anomalies and, effectively, extract a behavioral bias premium for the investor. This type of index is meant to identify when market rationality has taken flight and then, subsequently, as a result, adjust market exposure accordingly. A dynamic index is, essentially, a market capitalization weighted index that is meant to fulfill the financial function of an index. However, it is designed to change its market exposure or weights automatically in response to unfavorable market conditions. A dynamic index is meant to embody the enhanced theoretical understanding and technological know-how that will, finally, sever the link between passive risk management and passive investing. The difference between static and dynamic indices lies in the distinctions between the principles of the efficient markets hypothesis and the adaptive markets hypothesis. The adaptive markets hypothesis revision of the efficient markets principles are the following. Number one. Positive association between risk and reward amongst financial investments only exists under normal market conditions because when the population of investors is dominated by fear, rationality ceases, thus affecting the risk-reward trade-off. Number two, the capital asset pricing model and related linear factor models are useful inputs 
for portfolio management. However, they rely on several economic and statistical assumptions that may be poor approximations in certain environments. Knowing the environment and population dynamics of market participants may be more important than any single factor model. Number three, portfolio optimization tools are only useful under the assumption of rationality and stationarity. Risk management should be a higher priority, even for index funds. Number four, managing risk through diversification is not as effective as it previously was. The boundaries between assets has become blurred as markets become intercorrelated. Number five, equities do offer very attractive returns over the long term. However, investors need to be more proactive about managing their risks. In the words of John Maynard Keynes, the market can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Preview of remaining chapters. The second chapter supports the research that is discussed in the third and fourth chapter through a review of academic literature. The second chapter's first section briefly overviews the efficient markets hypothesis. The subsequent section examines the role of emotion in financial decision making. The third section delivers both empirical as well as normative evidence on the inverse relationship between risk and reward. After discussing the risk-reward trade-off distortion, the fourth and final section of the second chapter considers metrics that could be used to anticipate risk-return trade-off distortions. The third chapter presents the process by which the research aims and objectives are reached. The fourth chapter discusses the data collection and analysis processes, along with the findings they have produced. Adding to that, a section will be dedicated to addressing any ethical issues, considerations, or disclosures. The fifth chapter is a qualitative discussion of the findings. The final chapter serves as a conclusion. It looks backwards at the tests conducted, iterates the paper's limitations, and then finally points to opportunities for further research. Chapter 2, Literature Review, Efficient Markets Hypothesis. In this context, the term market efficiency refers to the stock market's informational efficiency as opposed to his constituents' operational efficiency. Louis Bachelier is now known to be the mathematician who first introduced the idea of market efficiency. After careful mathematical analysis of the warrant market on the French Borsa, Bachelier concluded that past, present, and discounted future events are reflected in market prices. Adding to that, Bachelier also noted that even in instances where the market does not predict its fluctuation, it still presents prices that upon mathematical evaluation, present accurate likelihoods and probabilities. Bachelier's findings led to his inference that the mathematical expectation of the speculator is zero. Besides some publications relating to analysis of economic time series, Louis Bachelier's modeling of the stochastic process went relatively unnoticed until Paul Samuelson stumbled upon it. Drawing on both the theory of speculation and Maurice Kendall's work on the independence of successive price changes in 1965, Samuelson published a paper which is now known as the Random Walk Hypothesis. The title of this paper eloquently expresses the gist of the hypothesis. Proof that properly anticipated prices fluctuate randomly. His work suggested that successive price changes are independent of each other and that they are identically distributed. Samuelson's work characterized economic time series, and this, in turn, paved the way for academics to measure the robustness of this characterization. In 1970, American economist Eugene Fama comprehensively reviewed and extended Samuelson's work. Instead of subduing market efficiency to a broad definition, 
Fama divided the concept into three subcategories, weak, semi-strong, and strong form of market efficiency. This division meant that there were levels to market efficiency, each of which could be measured and tested. A weak form efficient market incorporates all past information, meaning historical data cannot be used to make reliable inferences on the future. Serial correlation can be used to measure or test this form of efficiency since it quantifies the similarity between observations as a function of the time lag between them. A semi-strong form efficient market instantly absorbs new information and incorporates it into, into prices. And in this type of market, trading on new information will not help in outperforming the market. This type of informational efficiency is tested using the event study methodology. Fama studied the adjustment of stock prices to new information by examining stock split announcements. He found that, on average, new information's implication on prices is reflected almost immediately after announcement dates. Finally, a strong form efficient market is one that incorporates all information, be it past or present, public or private. Of course, testing for strong form efficiency comes with a set of difficulties, considering the fact that it is illegal in almost every country to trade on inside information. Upon examining all the literature available at the time, Farmer saw that the empirical evidence supporting weak form and semi-strong form market efficiency was extensive and that anything negating it was sparse. Of course, it is important to note that implicit in all the evidence supporting market efficiency is the assumption that market participants are all rational agents seeking maximum utility. Neuroscience and Financial Decision Making as discussed briefly in the first chapter, a long-standing controversy in economics and finance is whether or not the markets are governed by emotional responses or rational forces. A study on the psychophysiology of real-time financial risk processing has anecdotally proven that the notions of emotion and rationality are, in fact, complementary. Researchers used number of breaths per five-second intervals, skin conductance, and many other methods to measure financial traders' emotional responses to the market. The findings suggested that more experienced traders had stronger responses to the market. In other words, they quite literally felt the market more and as a result, intuitively reacted accordingly. Evidence on financial traders' psychophysiology, although anecdotal, is still very insightful considering the process of artificial selection that is prevalent in the industry. Let me explain. Unprofitable traders are known to be swiftly eliminated, so therefore, the experienced ones, the ones that have survived this process, more accurately represent the advantageous behavior necessary for survival. Bounded rationality suggests that the process of optimal decision-making is made through heuristics, a human adaptive problem-solving method not guaranteed to be optimal. It is through emotion that humans update their heuristics. Emotion is the basis for a reward-punishment system that facilitates the selection of advantageous behavior that allows animals to effectively engage in cost-benefit analysis. The process of selecting advantageous behavior is the result of an interplay between different parts of the brain, the rational, and the emotional. Since blood flows through the brain's circuitry into different lobes, signaling activation during the performance of complex tasks, neuroscientists were able, through MRI tests, to make inferences about cognitive processes. Among the different cognitive processes studied were, emo were, were extreme emotional reactions, such as fight or flight responses. 
fight or flight responses short circuit the brain, bypass the thinking brain responsible for rationality and signal the emotional brain. This process is known as an amygdala hijacking. Consequently, under conditions of extreme stress, emotional responses tend to govern tasks that would otherwise require rational deliberation. An active amygdala immediately shuts down the neural pathway to our prefrontal cortex. This shutdown prevents one from engaging in complex decision-making or accessing multiple perspectives. In other words, an amygdala hijacking forces one to strictly and absolutely live in the now, in a much literal rather than a poetic figurative sense. The complaints of every disappointed investor which has ever bought on strength to then later sell on weakness is reminiscent of an amygdala hijacking triggered by either fear, greed, or both. The work of Professor Matthew D. Lieberman of UCLA helps provide an accurate perspective on the level of impairment that amygdala hijacking can cause. Quantitative analysis on two sets of MRI tests done on 30 subjects who were all right-handed and had no history of any neurological problems revealed a correlation of negative 0.51 between the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex and amygdala activity. In summation, the underlying circuitry of departures in rationality stem from strong emotional responses. Of course, financial markets are not free from strong emotional responses such as fear and greed. Risk-reward trade-off distortions. Empirical evidence. Fisher Black noticed an empirical regularity in equity markets that was contrary to the commonly held beliefs on the risk-reward trade-off. Evidence suggested an inverse relationship between risk and equity prices. Black attributed the anomaly to what he coined the leverage effect. It was proposed that a decrease in stock prices altered debt-to-equity ratios and that, in turn, induced higher equity return volatility. Building upon this work, researchers looked for the same equity return volatility phenomenon but in a sample of all equity finance companies, meaning they carried no debt. Using the same tests applied by Black, they found that the so-called leverage effect also existed amongst all equity finance companies. The aforementioned dismisses Black's explanation and instead supports the behavioral interpretation that the inverse relationship is caused by a sudden change in demand for risky assets as a result of a change in investors' perception of risks. A stylized fact of financial data that contradicts the linear relationship between risk and reward is returns asymmetric response to positive and negative shocks of volatility. This suggests that investors are more inclined to adjust their positions in reaction to bad news than they are to good news. In fact, the threshold generalized autoregressive conditional heteroscedasticity model, in other words, the T-Garsh model, was developed for that very reason. Normative evidence. Another clash between economic theory and practice lies in the field of decision theory. The distinction between risk and uncertainty was first introduced in 1921 by Frank Knight. Knight suggested that if an unfavorable outcome has a known probability of occurrence and conduct in relation to the situation may be ordered, then it only presents a risk. Therefore, if the distribution of different possible outcomes is unknown and cannot be eliminated through consolidation, then all that exists is uncertainty. And the reverse is true. The economics, statistics, social science, and finance orthodoxy suggest that decisions are predicated on the maximization of utility.
In other words, rational choice. And that favorable outcomes are determined based on their numerical payoff. This narrative, although compelling, does fail when the notion of uncertainty is introduced. The anomaly, that is ambiguity aversion, was first introduced by Daniel Ellsberg. The Ellsberg paradox manifests the reluctance of subjects to incorporate incomplete information into their analyses. A simplified demonstration of the paradox can be illustrated as follows. Take the following example. In a 100-pound wager with a 200-pound payoff, a subject is faced with a binary option that involves two urns. Each urn contains 100 balls. Moreover, each urn possesses a combination of strictly two different colors, black and white. The subject must First, choose which urn he or she would like to draw a ball from, urn 1 or urn 2. Then, the subject must guess which color ball he or she will draw from the chosen urn. That color can obviously be black or white. Finally, the subject must draw the ball to find out whether he or she won or lost. Urn 1, uh, there are two urns. Urn 1 contains a known proportion of 50 black balls and 50 white balls. Urn 2 contains an unknown proportion of black and white balls. If the two wagers are auctioned out, urn 2 would be sold at a significant discount to urn 1, despite both urns having the same odds. Urn 1 may have clearly defined odds of 50-50. However, a closer examination of the set of possible combinations in Urn 2 would also reveal 50-50 odds. One white ball to 99 black balls, 99 white balls to one black ball, 2 to 98, 98 to 2, 3 to 97, 97 to 3, 4 to 96, 96 to 4, and so on. The mispricing of urn 2 represents human beings' innate fear of the unknown. This logic is present in financial markets and it causes a wide array of mispricing. Incomplete information is unbelievably relevant to financial analysis, but unfortunately most of the time it cannot be quantified, considered, or input into equations. Any uncertainty in the exposure an asset offers causes its value to be overly discounted. The market's treatment of uncertainty punishes returns and hikes up volatility. Needless to say, the market's treatment of, of uncertainty affects the risk-return trade-off. The linearity of risk and reward suggests that the utility function for changes in wealth is symmetrical for both losses and gains. The world-renowned behavioral critique to the asymmetry in the utility function is loss aversion. Loss aversion is better grasped when reflecting on evolutionary history. Organisms that treated threats as more urgent than opportunities had a better chance to survive and reproduce. Therefore, losses have a larger psychological weight than gains in the same proportion. The idea of loss aversion can be clarified with the following two binary option scenarios. Scenario number one. You either receive $900 for sure, or you get a 90% chance to gain $1,200. Scenario number two, you lose $900 for sure, or you get a 90% chance to lose 
$1,200. Now, most subjects would choose to be risk-averse when faced with gains and risk-seeking when faced with losses. Problems like the two scenarios described above are at the heart of prospect theory. Prospect theory can help explain common behavior exhibited by firms and individuals such as doubling down on losses or becoming risk-seeking in turbulent times. Losses increase the percent the pro- losses increase the propensity to take risks. They cause an imbalance in the risk-reward trade-off. In other words, a decrease in return causes a disproportionate increase in risk. A theory must be judged on its scope as well as its explanatory and predictive powers. The case that the behavioral economists make is a compelling one. It has merit. When risk-return asymmetry is assumed, ideas can be put together to give understanding, explain, and predict phenomenon. A paper written by the former director of research at the IMF prophesied the global financial crisis. It was noted how investors misaligned incentives with intermediaries caused market-wide distortions. Technological change made the movement of capital far more efficient than it ever was in the past. These advancements granted investors the freedom to transfer their funds from manager to manager with ease and at low cost. As a result, investors' standards were raised and managers' performance began to be measured comparatively against each other, essentially. The rise of comparative performance measures created an environment that encouraged herding. William Hamilton defined herding as the uncoordinated behavior of individuals engaged in predator avoidance. An investment manager's imperative is to survive, in other words, keep getting paid. And so, given the conditions that allow that to happen, mimicking the market became an evolutionary stable strategy. Herding allowed investment managers to effectively hedge against their own strategies failing. This new environment and the behavior it is inciting makes the market susceptible to speculative bubbles, irrational exuberance. The aforementioned supports the view that in certain scenarios, owing to how financial managers' incentive structures are set up, the market is often taking on risks suboptimally. This hurting behavior creates risk that is disproportionate to return, and unfortunately, most investors don't catch on to this until it's too late. This idea of hurting behavior being exhibited by humans, particularly in financial markets, is not a new one. Psychologists have written about collective hypnosis and mental unity. John Maynard Keynes referred to animal spirits that move the market. By 1992, some economists have shown, through modeling, that people are prone to follow others, even if private information and motivations suggested doing otherwise. Possible indicators of market distortions. Many factors contribute to market inefficiency. For example, the market participants which trade on perceived patterns can, in effect, produce those patterns themselves and, of course, as a result, cause past price movements to determine future ones. Furthermore, inefficiency could even appear as a result of inactivity, not reacting on new information, simply buying and holding. Lastly, irrational behaviors such as trading on trends can also distort the market. Recognizing irrational behavior, like the ones mentioned before, can be boiled down to tests between current period and past period returns. The random walk hypothesis suggests that properly anticipated prices in an efficient market fluctuate randomly. So therefore, market return serial, serial correlation should be close to zero. Conclusions from a study made on the evolution of market efficiency for the past 103 years that has used serial correlation tests imply 
that market efficiency is not static. It waxes and wanes relative to the environment. Also, it revealed that the relationship between volatility and correlation is nonlinear. It is exponential. And that negative movements with high autocorrelation occurred during periods of high volatility. The latter of what was mentioned previously further supports the claim that the nature of how financial markets operate distorts the risk-reward trade-off. Anthony Yangzian Zhu's research on the evolution of market efficiency has uncovered a three-way link between market efficiency, volatility, and autocorrelation. This, of course, supports the use of volatility or autocorrelation as proxies for market efficiency, ergo as indicators of market distortion. As mentioned before in the chapter on neuroscience and financial decision-making, at times fear can override our ability to think rationally. So far, the measure discussed is a backward-looking calculation that may have the potential to detect markets' departures from rationality. However, a forward-looking measure, and arguably more insightful measure to indicate market distortion, can be found in the options market. The Black-Scholes model provides investors with a relatively precise value figure for an option upon inputting its strike price, time to maturity, the current value of its underlying asset, as well as a figure that represents a proxy for that asset's risk, usually rolling the standard deviation. The process by which investors obtain option values can be reversed. Given the market price of a put or call option, one can obtain the implied volatility of the underlying security. Since an option is considered a safeguard against volatility, its underlying security's expected volatility is a, is a detriment of its value. Now, with regards to using the options market's implied volatility figures, it is important to note that while evidence suggests that market efficiency waxes and wanes, there is no proof whatsoever that one market's level of efficiency directly influenced another. In other words, the wisdom of one crowd may actually be used to detect madness in another. Therefore, the option market's crowdsource wisdom may prove to be reliable in detecting the level of efficiency in the market of its underlying assets. The VIX index is a forward-looking measure of volatility, also referred to as Wall Street's fear gauge. It is derived from the implied volatilities of the S&P 500 market index put and call options. To be more specific, the SBOE market volatility index, also known as the VIX, is constructed from the implied volatilities of eight near-the-money, nearby, and second nearby OEX option series with the shortest time to expiration, but with at least eight calendar days to expiration. The result of the aforementioned is a figure coded in percentage points that shows the market's expectations of 30-day volatility. The VIX might be said to provide a crowdsourced estimate for the degree to which the market is uncertain about the future. Robert E. Whaley was the consultant the Chicago Board Option Exchange Commission hired to develop the tradable volatility instrument that is now known as the VIX. Whaley's research on the VIX and the S&P 500's historical price movements is in line with the research paper's view on the true nature of the risk-reward trade-off, and this in turn suggests that the VIX has the potential to be a reliable indicator of market distortion. Findings revealed an inverse relationship between the S&P 500 and the VIX during times of geopolitical uncertainty such as Iraq's invasion of Kuwait as well as market crashes and sell-offs. Furthermore, rates of change in the VIX and the S&P prove to be asymmetric. In other words, the VIX's response to a negative movement in the S&P is expected to be higher in magnitude than its response to a positive movement that is equal in proportion to the negative S&P movement. 
Whaley also noticed that oftentimes a run-up in stock prices is followed by a run-up in volatility. Such a pattern was found in the years 1995, 97, and 99, the years leading up to the tech bubble. Also, research has shown that the option market is prone to move based on unsubstantiated rumors, and this in turn makes it a reliable detector of market uncertainty. During an economic crisis, for example, even credit default swap spreads are led by implied volatility. Considering the case this paper has made on the inverse relationship between risk and return, the VIX index could be an effective forward-looking indicator of market distortion. Chapter 3. Methodology. Research methodology. The overall purpose of this paper's research processes is to verify whether or not the adaptive markets hypothesis, mainly qualitative framework, has any practical applications. At its very core, this research is exploratory. Published work relating to this very specific area is scarce. However, the adaptive markets hypothesis principles and how they differ with other schools of thought is clear. So, this research has no intention of emerging a new theory from its findings, but rather it is solely concerned with testing a theory that has already been put forth. In other words, this research applies deductive reasoning. It is beginning with hypotheses, three to be exact. First alternative hypothesis is that there is a deterministic relationship between the VIX index and S&P 500 returns. The null hypothesis states otherwise. The second, alternative, the second hypothesis proposed is that during 2017, the S&P 500 index did not satisfy the preconditions of an efficient market, and its null hypothesis states otherwise. The third and final hypothesis states that a dynamic index is capable of outperforming a static index, and its null hypothesis, of course, states otherwise. Quantitative observations specific to the previously mentioned hypotheses has been collected and analyzed in order, in, in, in order to either reject or fail to reject their null hypotheses. Research aims. This research's aim, first and foremost, is to unbiasedly test whether the, the titanic leaps forward regarding technology and theoretical understanding can finally be put to market-wide practical use. All in all, this research can be regarded as a dialogue initiation with the finance community's academics and practitioners. As shown in this paper's introductory chapter, the current investment paradigm came to be through the continuous development and exchange of ideas. According to Moore's law, 10 years ago equates to 100 years ago with regards to what computers can do for us. Ideas evolve at the speed of human thought and technological capacity rises, almost exponentially. Therefore, it is paramount for academics to continuously test, over time, what is and what is not possible. In his most recent book, Adaptive Markets, Professor Andrew Lowe introduces the first model of the dynamic index. The index follows a volatility, ma a volatility management strategy as follows. If the estimated rolling day volatility of the S&P 500 index at a given date exceeds a pre-specified threshold, the dynamic index invests a portion of the funds in cash. If the volatility falls below the threshold, it invests with the help of some leverage more than 100% of the fund in the S&P 500. The dynamic index 
concept introduced above is meant to extract a premium by exploiting an anomaly, the inverse relationship between stock prices and volatility. The volatility controlled index outperformed the standard static index for periods 1926 to 2014. Research objectives. This paper introduces its own unique dynamic index investment strategy with its own unique indicator of market distortion in addition to a different course of action once the pre-specified threshold is exceeded. In this case, the standardized trading strategy, this dynamic index, is simply a non-leverage investment in the S&P 500, which is expected to continue on until the VIX opening rate exceeds a pre-specified threshold. Once, or if it does, all holdings are converted into cash. And, of course, once and if the VIX opening rate falls below the pre-specified threshold, the index can then convert the cash back into a non-leverage investment in the S&P 500. Basically, for a dynamic index, an investment in the S&P 500 is contingent upon the VIX opening rate being below the pre-specified threshold. Listed below is the exact specification of the dynamic indices that have been constructed and tested for this research paper. This research process of dynamic index construction was as follows. Firstly, uh, assume the rolling day average of the VIX's open incorporates information that could reliably predict market distortion. Split this measure into three different categories, 25 rolling day average VIX open, 50 rolling day average VIX open, 75 rolling day average VIX open. A rolling day average is basically a moving average. It is considered a fixed frame average calculation that moves forward with time. Now split each category into six subcategories, rolling day average plus one, rolling day average plus two, plus three, plus four, plus five, and plus six. A plus one threshold would mean that the portfolio will turn into cash once the VIX opens at one point above its rolling day average. So for example, a 25 rolling day average plus one dynamic index will remain invested fully in the S&P 500 so long as the VIX index doesn't open one point above its rolling day average. If it does, it would then simply cash out. Each combination of category and subcategory represents a, dis a distinct standardized trading strategy, 18 to be exact, a distinct dynamic index with a pre-specified threshold. The process described above facilitates a thorough examination of the overall viability of standardized trading strategies, as well as the robustness of the VIX Open's rolling day average as an indicator of market distortion. Research questions. Using a sample of historical data of both S&P 500 adjusted close and VIX Open figures from the 15th of September 2016 on to the 29th of December 2017. Question number one, market conditions during the sample period. 1A, was the market, uh, in other words, the S&P 500 efficient during the sample period? Question one, section B, is there a relationship between the VIX's opening rate and the S&P 500's return at market close? Is this relationship linear? Is this relationship quadratic, cubic, or is it all of the above? Question number two, dynamic indices and their performance. Question 2a, how do the 18 different dynamic index strategies rank against each other? Question 2b, considering annual return, return per unit of risk, linear function, and risk, 
how does the top-ranking dynamic index's performance compare to that of a static index? Chapter 4. Analysis and Findings Data Analysis Market Conditions During the Sample Period This section details this paper's data analysis strategy. The application of the strategy produced the findings that are discussed. The subsequent texts iterating this paper's data analysis strategy will correspond with the order in which the research questions were listed previously in Chapter 3. Market efficiency during the sample period was tested using an augmented Dickey-Fuller unit root test. The ADF unit root test determines whether a series is stationary or otherwise. Stationarity is an important condition for market efficiency since a non-stationary time series will not be able to follow a random walk. The mean and or variance of a non-stationary time series will depend on time and will approach infinity as time goes to infinity. Basically, a stationary series correlogram will die out quickly, reflecting neg negligible serial correlation, whilst a non-stationary series correlogram won't diminish. It won't tend to zero. If market returns follow a random walk, they must be stationary. Regression analysis was used to examine the relationship between the VIX at market open and the S&P 500's return at market close. Deterministic relationships can exist on either a linear, quadratic, or cubic level. Therefore, three models were estimated. Of course, each of them had the S&P 500 return at market close as the dependent variable. The only difference between them was the exponent of the independent variable, the VIX open. The regression models provide a quick and clear-cut method in analyzing deterministic relationships between variables. If the independent variable's coefficient is significantly different than 1, and its r-squared is close to 1, then that would suggest explanatory power. So, with regards to making conclusions on the nature of the relationship between the two variables, the model with the largest coefficient and highest r-squared, in absolute terms, provides the answer. Dynamic indices and their performance. This paper compares and contrasts the performance of 18 different dynamic index strategies during the period of uh, 3rd of January 2017 to uh, 29th of December 2017. The first measure of performance is average return. The average return in this case is simply each index's average daily return throughout the sample period. After return performance measures, there is risk. In this paper, Daily standard deviation, also known as sigma, is taken as the proxy for risk. Across each observation, each index's deviation from its average performance per observation is squared to standardize the deviation. Subsequently, the standardized deviations are summed together, averaged out, and then finally square-rooted to provide a clear-cut relative measure of risk. Of course, seeing that each index's risk is calculated within a confined number of observations, the figure had to incur a penalty. To better understand each index's relationship with static index returns, a characteristic line is drawn for each index. A characteristic line is plotted in accordance to each index's linear function. If an adaptive index is to be an exact clone of the static index, its linear equation mustn't have an intercept. Its coefficient, its beta, must be 1 to indicate a near-perfect correlation. Also, an error term wouldn't be necessary. So, whenever this is not the case, the intercept in an adaptive index's linear equation will communicate its alpha. Of course, alpha can be negative or positive. 
the coefficient beta will convey each index's risk in relation to a static index. For each adaptive index, regressions were estimated in relation to static index returns and then uh, ranked accordingly. Measuring and then ranking each index's risk-adjusted adjust returns puts together all the elements of investment performance that were previously discussed. The Sharpe ratio performance metric reveals which index would have compensated its investors more for gaining exposure to risk. The index with the highest Sharpe ratio will naturally be more fit for leverage. A visual representation of the top performing indices with regards to risk, overall return, and risk-adjusted return will be illustrated by plotting each index's capital allocation line. By assuming a risk-free rate that investors can borrow and lend at, the dominant index will provide the best investment opportunity for any level of risk. In essence, the capital allocation line illustration represents the final reckoning. The risk-free rate, in this case, will be the average one-year treasury bill rate throughout the sample period. Uh, annualized, it's uh, equal to 1.213%. Data collection. The data collection process was conducted as follows. Using a Bloomberg terminal, VIX and S&P 500 historical prices were downloaded. Uh, using Excel, logarithmic daily returns for the S&P 500 were computed. Additionally, all indices were paper traded and uh, performance was measured and then finally ranked. Using eViews, the necessary regression, uh, augmented Dickey-Fuller tests uh, was performed and the data set frequency distribution for each dynamic index was uh, derived and plotted. Ethical considerations. This research worth is, is not dependent upon positive results, ones favoring dynamic indices, since there is already enough literature negating the efficient markets hypothesis assumptions. Furthermore, Andrew Lowe's qualitative framework, the adaptive markets hypothesis, is solid and its principles are grounded in evolutionary biology. In the case of this paper, for the sake of the truth, negative results are considered as valuable and as important as positive results. With regards to the integrity of the data, it was all collected from what is believed to be one of the most reliable vendors available, a Bloomberg terminal. Chapter 5. Discussions. Discussion of the research questions and answers. Market conditions. The ADF test confirms that within the sample period, the market's returns followed a random walk with a drift. The ADF test p-value was 0, 0.000. In other words, it rejected the North hypothesis at all significance levels, meaning the S&P 500's returns time series within the sample period, all of the year 2017's trading days, was stationary. This means that we are unable to accept the alternative hypothesis related to the preconditions of market efficiency, which was defined in Chapter 3. Uh, on a linear, quadratic, and cubic level, there doesn't seem to be any strong relationship between market returns and the VIX. Moreover, it appears that estimating all the previously chosen independent variables together in the same equation actually lowers the adjusted R-squared. Chapter 6, Conclusions. Looking backwards, this research paper's objective was to create market portfolios that followed standardized trading strategies, coined dynamic indices. These strategies entailed catching in and out of the market systematically, Full exposure to the market was contingent upon the VIX's open being below a pre-specified threshold. Of course, the rationale behind creating dynamic indices 
and choosing to link their thresholds to the VIX's open was, of course, discussed in the literature review. 18 different dynamic indices were created. This paper's research questions focused mainly on two aspects, the market's condition as well as the indices' performance within the sample period. Each index's performance was measured and ranked using metrics that satisfy the research questions. Adding to that, for the purpose of further illustrating the top indices' hierarchy of dominance, their capital allocation lines were plotted. The main aim of this research paper was to test the applicability of this new investment paradigm. This aim was achieved through adherence to the research methodology and its data analysis strategy. Ultimately, the findings produced suggest, suggest that adaptive indices may have the potential to consistently earn a premium over the static market portfolio and thus shift the prevailing investment paradigm. Limitations. Despite the positive findings, there is still the chance that in practice, transaction costs could be a big obstacle, one that would have a big impact on a dynamic index's performance. For example, the superior index, according to our findings, the 50 rolling day average plus one, cashes out and then back into the market 11 times for a total of 39 trading days. However, two factors have the potential of erasing these possibly impactful disadvantages. Firstly, a higher interest rate environment could, to some extent, act as a counterbalance to the transaction costs that would be incurred. Secondly, the disruption caused by the fintech industry that we are observing now is causing increased competition, which has the potential to provide investors, both retail and institutional, with better services at, lo at lower costs. Opportunities of further research. This research has touched on a myriad of relevant topics within the realm of both risk management and financial economics. So naturally, many questions have been left unanswered. These unanswered questions are opportunities for further research. The alternative hypothesis, a dynamic index is capable of outperforming a static index, which was defined in chapter 3, was neither completely proven or disproven. Simply, the null hypothesis was rejected. In reality, the alternative hypothesis cannot truly be regarded as robust until it has been scrutinized and tested further. Dynamic indices' overarching principle is to invest solely and completely in the market, so long as market's efficiency is not distorted. The aforementioned was the reason for dividing the research into two parts that focus on two different areas. Firstly, the market and the indicator of its distortion, and secondly, the dynamic indices themselves and how they performed. Unfortunately, the research's first section was unfruitful. The market's efficiency tests were inconclusive, the tests conducted could in no way confirm whether or not the principle of high risk equals high return was particularly distorted. Therefore, a cause and effect relationship between market distortion and dynamic indexes excess returns could not be identified. Moving on, the tests conducted to certify whether or not there is a deterministic relationship uh, between the VIX and the S&P 500's returns were inadequate. Basically, more can and should be done. Regressing a dependent variable against a lagged independent variable is an effective way of identifying lead-lag relationships, which of course could support the hypothesis that there is a deterministic relationship between the VIX and S&P 500's returns. Therefore, perhaps estimating the same equations with a lagged VIX variable could generate insightful results. Overall, the second area of research, the dynamic indices performance, was executed perfectly. 
it yielded undeniably intriguing results. However, backtesting was confined to a limited sample period. This, no doubt, leaves a wide gap of further research. Furthermore, the level of analysis that the dynamic indices underwent was merely fundamental. However, it has paved the path for research that could introduce a more complex line of questioning. Upon adopting the adaptive markets framework, researchers can either look for possibly more reliable indicators of market distortion or create variations of the dynamic index strategy that this research paper has already tested. For example, since the findings show that the indices which thresholds are linked to longer rolling day averages perform poorly, it could be inferred that longer period rolling day averages carry less relevant information. This inference can be tested by measuring, for example, the performance of a dynamic index which responds to a threshold linked to an exponentially weighted moving average of the VIX. Also, there is more research to be done on other possible indicators of market distortions. Final comments. This paper presents biological, behavioral, and empirical evidence which makes a case that financial markets overly discount uncertainty. These discounts produce temporary losses that can be avoided. It is important to note that in 2017, the market was undoubtedly bullish. And despite that, most of the dynamic indices were triggered to cash out. The indisputably dominant index, the 50 rolling day average plus one in terms of sharp ratio, exited the market for a total of 39 trading days.